You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. So welcome to Intelligent Talk. We're pleased to have Nigel West with us, nigelwest.com. He's arguably the foremost intelligence writer in the world. I was pleased to meet him about 10 years ago. He happened to be on the Queen Mary, and we had a nice discussion. I've been reading his books for some 35 years. Probably the most famous book he's written is about a famous spy codenamed Garbo, um, Juan Pujol. And he'll discuss that, obviously, as we get into the conversation with him. But he's written dozens of books, and you'll hear from him about um, all the books. His website is nigelwest.com. You can see videos that he's done and also um, order books that he's written. Um, where I, I find him a fascinating writer, and he has a specialty, obviously, in World War II and how that affected, how spies affected the outcome of the war. So without further ado, I'll uh, welcome Nigel West, and thank you so much for being on the program. So, Mr. West, if I could just start and ask you, how did you get into writing about intelligence matters? What what led you to that interest, and how did you get involved in this field? Well, I suppose it dates back probably to being mildly compulsive obsessive at school, and I read a book called The Venlo Incident, which was about the abduction of two British intelligence officers in the Dutch-German border in November 1939. And I was so fascinated by this book, which is written by one of the survivors, a man called Sigismund Best, that I decided to try and find him. And eventually I did find him and interviewed him. And I think that from that moment on, I was hooked. I then, at university, worked as a researcher for two authors, both of whom had been wartime intelligence officers. And uh, at that stage, it was really too late. So, Mr. West, obviously you've written on so many subjects. How many books have you written, if I could ask? Uh, I've lost count. I think my ex-wife keeps a pretty good accounting, <laughs> but I suspect there are about 40. Yes, it's amazing. So I'm just going to try to cover the highlights. And obviously World War II is a, a fascination to me, and I know of you as well. And could you just, for our audience who does not clear, could you just discuss, please, what the double-cross system was and how that worked in England and turning the spies? Yes. At the outbreak of war, the British Security Service, MI5, had the good fortune to arrest on the first day of the war a Welsh spy who was working for the Germans. Being a duplicitous Welshman, he immediately switched sides and offered to work against his German masters and in support of the English, which he rather disliked. Well, the consequence of that was that really from the first week in the war, the British Security Service was in control of a wireless link to Germany. And that became the first route for supplying false information to the enemy. By the end of 1940, and really the beginning of 1941, so many agents had come under control that the British needed to find a method of clearing information with the relevant services to be able to pass on to the enemy. And this is 
no mean feat because to provide the enemy with some authentic information is, of course, an exceptionally hazardous undertaking. So the issue was what information could be passed. And the only way bureaucratically of being able to get permission from all the relevant parties was to create a committee. This became known as the 20 Committee. That's double cross, two X's, Roman numerals for 20. And that began to meet in January 1941 on a weekly basis and continued right the way through to the end of the war. Ultimately, more than 100 double agents came under MI5's control, passing false information to the Abwehr, the German Military Intelligence Service. Okay, thank you. Thank you for explaining that, Mr. Weston. I just want to focus on two people that you've written about. Um, obviously, the, the most, the more important one is probably uh, Garbo, but you also wrote a book on this spy levy in Egypt. Um, I think you called the book Double Cross in Cairo. Could you just explain who, who Mr. Levy was and how, why he was important? Yes, Renato Levy was an Italian from a wealthy background. His mother had been a film star and they owned a couple of hotels in Rapallo and in Genoa. And he had a British passport because his father owned a boat building business in India. He'd been educated in Germany and he was recruited by the Abwehr, the German Military Intelligence Service, in 1939 to go to France to spy on behalf of the Germans. He was reluctant to do so. As his name implies, he was of Jewish origin, and he volunteered to the British that he had come under German control, and the British Secret Intelligence Service agreed to recruit him and run him as a double agent jointly with the Deuxième Bureau in Paris. After he had completed his mission in, in France, the Germans were so pleased that they sent him on a much longer extended mission to establish a wireless station to report intelligence from Cairo. And Renato spent a long time getting to Egypt. When he was there, he reported to the British authorities. And MI5 had a Middle East branch, a local branch called Security Intelligence Middle East. And there was a particularly inspiring case officer who collaborated with Levy and his name was Evan Simpson, and he had a highly developed sense of humor, and he created, not realizing that Renato Levy was likely to survive over a long period, he never imagined that as a double agent, the Germans would fall for the ruse. So he created a completely notional network. So his fictitious deputy, who manned the radio transmitter, was called Paul Nikosov. And when the Germans said, who is Paul Nikosov? Uh, Evan Simpson realized that he had to continue the charade and said, well, he's a Syrian of Russian extraction. So Nikosov then became the wireless operator for Renato Levy. Levy was codenamed Roberto by the Germans, and they believed the information that he provided, which ultimately created an entirely false order of battle for British Middle East forces. And this really exaggerated the strength of Allied forces, particularly in Egypt. And this misassessment of Allied strengths by the Germans played a very significant role in the defeat of the Africa Corps uh, at El Alamein. And that demonstrated the value of the principle of strategic deception. And that principle having been so successful in the Middle East, tying up 
large numbers of German troops in the Balkans where they were uh, wasting their time when they could have been deployed to France was so effective, so helpful to the Allies, that the whole entire exercise was repeated again in anticipation of the Normandy landings in 1944. Yes, and so Mr. West, I saw that the British were covering up the name of this spy until fairly recently. They were re- releasing documents with his name covered up. How did you get access to his name and find out who he was? How did you uncover that story? It took me about eight years to track down the details of Renato Levy, identify his name, find his family. turned out that some of his family were actually living in Cowes in the Isle of Wight, the famous sailing resort. Uh, other members of the family are in Italy, and none of them were fully aware of precisely what Renato had done during the Second World War. Unfortunately, at one time he was captured by his Italian compatriots, imprisoned, uh, starved, uh, very badly treated, and he effectively died of his uh, maltreatment in 1954. So it was, it was a hard not only to reconstruct what he had accomplished, but to, to find his family. But eventually I was able to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together, and that became a book, double, as you rightly say, Double Cross in Cairo. Well, thank you for explaining that. And obviously, of course, the Battle of Al Alamein was uh, Mount Baden's great victory. I think he was then called Mount Baden of Al Alamein uh, after that victory. Um, I Montgomery. Just, Montgomery, sorry. Uh, I just want to turn your attention to um, uh, Juan Pujol, uh, who was the um, Catalonian spy who the British uh, had dubbed him Garbo after Greta Garbo because he was such a fantastic uh, actor. And obviously how you tracked him down is very interesting, but... Could you just first explain what he did and why he was important? Yes, Juan Pujol was somebody who was immensely politically sensitive and believed, although he was a Spaniard and was ostensibly a neutral in the Second World War, he believed that the Nazis would destroy European civilization. All right. So he volunteered to help the British and ultimately became the fabricator-in-chief He sat at his desk in Portugal and fabricated information which he sold to the Germans. The Germans were so desperate for information from Britain that they believed what he told them. And ultimately, when the British security authorities realized there was a fabricator active in Portugal, who occasionally got pieces of information right just by sheer guesswork, ultimately recruited him, brought him to England, and as you rightly say, dubbed him Garbo because he was the best actor in the world. And then Garbo, uh, of course, plays a very important role, the most important role is the D-Day landing. Could you explain that, please? Yes, thanks to Renato Levy and the entire operation that had been conducted in the at least, codenamed Cheese, where the Allied forces had been hugely exaggerated. The British decided that they would try and repeat the exercise in anticipation of the landings in Normandy. And the intention was to misdirect the enemy as to the exact site of the landings. Everybody knew there was going to be an invasion. The question was precisely where and and precisely when. And of course, military doctrine dictated that you would take 
160,000 men the shortest distance across the channel, and that would allow maximum amount of air cover, and it would be simpler to resupply those troops. So the Germans anticipated that the Allies would cross really from Kent, from Dover and from Folkestone, across the shortest part of the channel to the Pas de Calais district in northern France. Well, of course, you know and I know that the Allies in fact landed in Normandy. And this was the great deception. The role played by Garbo was to simply confirm the prejudice that the Germans had already developed. So they were predisposed to accept that the Allies would come across to the Pas de Calais and everything that Garbo told them indicated a concentration of troops and in particular a non-existent huge first United States Army group that had been assembling in East Anglia in the southeast of England in anticipation of embarking on ships to go to the Pas de Calais. Well, of course, the entire deception depended on false wireless traffic, uh, all sorts of disguises, fake landing craft, the deployment of fake aircraft, uh, the deployment of dummy tanks, tank tracks in the ground to be seen by Luftwaffe air reconnaissance flights. All of these pieces of the jigsaw were put together in order to create the impression that the German assessment was correct, that the Allies would land in the Pas de Calais. And so the role for Garbo was on the night of the invasion in Normandy was to tell the Germans that this was merely a diversionary feint and that the real invasion was going to take place two weeks later in the Pas de Calais. And secondly, uh, his, his message was to tell the Germans that there was a huge army that was massing in the southeast of England, that his agents, and he had about 24 sub-agents reporting to him, supposedly, their observations of all the insignia all the shoulder flashes, all the vehicles, all the armor that they had seen assembling in the southeast of England. All of this information simply reinforced what German military intelligence analysts were predisposed to believe, and that was that the British would take the shortest route across the channel. Right, and also they held up, when the, when the Normandy invasion did occur, didn't they, the Germans hold up the panzer divisions that could have been deployed, but they were held up in anticipation of another landing site, and that was partly due, to, obviously, to Garbo? Yes, that's absolutely right. We learned after the war, uh, an intelligence officer called Cuthbert Hesketh found a, a captured telegram in a bunch of documents which was an order that was sent to the 1st SS Panzer Division that was preparing to move down to counterattack while the troops were still on the beaches in Normandy. And they were stopped in their tracks and sent back to the Franco-Belgian border where they had been garrisoned. And the telegram was very significant. It said information from our best agent in England, codenamed Alaric, and that of course was Garbo's German codename, indicates that an invasion is imminent in the Pas de Calais. And the story of Normandy might have been very different if this crack panzer division had been deployed to, to counterattack the troops while they were still on the beaches. And who knows what might have happened in those circumstances. So 
we know from that telegram, which was signed by uh, General Yodel and initialed by Hitler himself, that this had a very significant impact on the successful prosecution of the battle for Normandy. And am I correct also that the money that was given by the Abwehr, the, the German intelligence, to Juan Pujol, that was then used by British intelligence to help fund their operations? Is that correct, too? <laughs> yes. Uh, Garbo was very expensive. He uh, had a pretty significant lifestyle. He had a, his wife and two, uh, and then subsequently a third child in England. He had 24 sub-agents to pay for, all of whom uh, had expenses. None of them were ideologically motivated. And so this was a very expensive operation. And MI5 invented a scheme codenamed Plan Dream, in which, uh, quite simply, uh, it was arranged that Garbo would receive money in London uh, from a Spanish fruit merchant and the Germans would pay the Spanish fruit merchant in Madrid. And tens of thousands of pounds were paid to Pujol in this way from 1943 right up until the last day of the Second World War. And that money was sufficient to pay for the entire MI5 operation, not just the Garbo operation, but all the other double agents as well. Paid the salaries, paid all the expenses. That is just fascinating. And so, as I understand it, um, in about 1972, if I'm correct, you started actually wondering if this wonderful uh, man who had done all this, if he was still alive, and you set about to try to track him down. Is that correct? In 1972... Sir John Masterman, who had been chairman of the Double Cross Committee, the 20 Committee, way back in 1941, he was authorized to release some declassified documents which described the role of Garbo, but of course didn't identify him. And it was explained that Garbo had died in Africa of malaria after the war. And I always suspected that that probably wasn't true and that Garbo was, was still alive. And I'm afraid that I took 12 years, I was rather slow, but I took 12 years trying to find him. And eventually in 1984, I tracked him down to Caracas in Venezuela and ultimately uh, persuaded him to reveal himself. And uh, he came to London just in time for the 40th anniversary of the D-Day landings in June 1984. And he was received at Buckingham Palace where there was an investiture and he received the medal that he had been awarded in 1944 but had never actually been formally given or gazetted because, of course, of the secrecy surrounding his true identity. I think that you, if I'm correct, you thought about, you contacted Buckingham Palace and you said, would you be interested in giving this award to him? And then you were able to get in touch with him and you basically were able to offer the award as a way to sort of get him to come out of the shadows because he had really never talked about this. And I think he said to you, I'll meet you in New Orleans because he wanted his sons to be aware, aware of the story. Is that correct? Yes, you, you've really paraphrased precisely what happened. Uh, when I eventually tracked down the man that I thought probably was Garbo in Venezuela, I had the problem of persuading him to reveal himself. And I knew that he would almost certainly deny uh, at 
anything to do with espionage during the Second World War, what, why would he admit it? Right. So I persuaded Buckingham Palace because the Duke of Edinburgh is a huge espionage fan. He reads all the books that are released on uh, espionage subjects, particularly in the Second World War. And he said, everybody knows that Garbo's dead. And I'm afraid I told a little fit, please don't tell him. Uh, but at that stage, I bluffed and said, he, no, he's alive. And he's definitely coming to London. <laughs> and, the Duke, and the Duke said, well, if he's coming to London, he must come to Buckingham Palace. We would love to meet him. And we will, of course, uh, award him the medal that he was given in secrecy back in 1944. And we'll have a ceremony for him. So, of course, nobody refuses a call from Number 10 Downing Street, the White House, or Buckingham Palace. Of course. Everybody knows those names. Right. So when I called Caracas, I told a, another little small fib, explained that I was calling from Buckingham Palace and wished to speak to the famous double agent codenamed Garbo. And that was my introduction to Juan Pujol. Well, it's a fascinating story how you did it. Just while we're on the subject of, of German intelligence and obviously double-cross, uh, Admiral Canaris, I believe, was the head of the German intelligence. Is that right? Correct. And there were some people, I mean, obviously he was sort of working on both sides of the fence. He was, he told, I believe, Franco, the head of Spain, not to get involved in the war. He was later killed right before the war ended. And some people say that also, I didn't. is it true that he had a meeting with the head of the OSS uh, and one of the British intelligence people in Spain a few years before the war ended? No, there the were rumors to that effect, but uh, that turns out to be a bit of an urban legend. But what was true was that his mistress, who was a Polish lady called Helena Szymanska, uh, was in touch with both Polish intelligence and British intelligence. And Canaris had stashed her in an apartment in Bern in Switzerland during the Second World War. And uh, she had been in contact with OSS and the British. And Canaris passed messages to the British through Helena Szymanska. And you'll be amazed to know that it took me some years to trace her. But eventually I tracked her down to Mobile, Alabama. Amazing. And so uh, he was never a British spy then, Canaris. What was he? No, Canaris was uh, a very enigmatic figure. He was actually quite pro-Nazi to begin with, and then ultimately allowed his organization to protect uh, Jews and aristocrats who were opposed to the Nazi regime. And ultimately, after a series of disasters and some bad defections at the end of 1943 and the beginning of 1944, he was suspended, put under house arrest, uh, and then eventually imprisoned after the 20th of July plot when his senior staff, including one of his deputies, Jörg Hansen, was directly implicated in the Stauffenberg plot to assassinate Hitler. In fact, it was Hansen who actually handed the explosives to Stauffenberg uh, when he took them to the Wolf's Lair 
to assassinate the Fuhrer. Oh, really? Interesting. All right. Um, I want to discuss one more sort of interesting spy to me that you have not written a book about, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on him. Rudolf Rossler, Red Orchestra, the Lucy Spy Network, the person who was sort of getting information from the Germans and broadcasting them, I think, through a British agent in Switzerland to back to England. And for, there, there was a book written about Rossler, but it was many years ago, and there's been no, as far as I know, updated story on his life. And I sort of find the Red Orchestra Spy Network interesting. Have you look, looked into that, done research on that? I certainly have, and so is virtually every intelligence agency in the world, because this is probably the last great mystery of the Second World War. As, as you rightly say, there was a branch of the Red Orchestra based in Switzerland. It was called the Rotor Dry, the Red Three, and it included a British wireless operator which called Alan Foote, which is why we know a fair amount about the Rotor Dry, because he subsequently defected when he was on a mission for Soviet intelligence to the United States after the war. He defected to the British and disclosed the existence of the Rotor Dry. And the mystery has always been, where did they get such really good information that they were able to pass on to Moscow right. in a timely fashion? And this was information that came right from the heart of the Reich. And to this day, we do not understand the full implications of that network. There is a suspicion that it was a manipulation of a Swiss intelligence operation called Viking. But we don't know for certain, and until the Swiss Bundespolizei adopts a policy of declassification and releases their secret wartime files, we will never know. Do you think they're keeping that quiet because Switzerland has sort of a dual relationship? The spymaster was meeting with um, that guy who wrote the book, The Labyrinth. Um, I forget the name of the person who wrote the book, but he was dealing with the head of Swiss intelligence. And do you think that's why they're reluctant to uh, release it? Schellenberg. Well, Schellenberg the, sus sorry. the suspicion is that the reason why the Swiss are so reluctant to declassify their wartime files is that it will reveal a very close relationship really between the German military intelligence service and the Swiss. And then it will also indicate that the Swiss were helping the Russians as well. And there is really only one likely explanation for the way in which the rotor drive were able to penetrate right to the heart of the Reich and get information within hours of decisions being made in Berlin. This information was being transmitted on a wireless link from Lausanne to Moscow. So this was really quite extraordinary, and it is probably the last mystery of the Second World War, but we'll have to wait for the Swiss to provide the information. All right. Well, if I could just turn you to a, another book you have written about, and obviously it's a very interesting uh, topic, The Venona Intercepts, the classified information that we were obtaining from the Russians that were sending information back uh, to Moscow from the U.S. And it had a bunch of information which it now can be known, but at the time it couldn't be revealed. For example, that the Rosenbergs were in fact guilty. And there were other, is that correct? Yes, Venona revealed the uh, code names, not necessarily the identities, of about 300 Soviet spies in the United States. This was actually a global communications operation which was conducted through Western Union, curiously enough, so it wasn't necessary to 
rely on wireless operators to intercept the traffic. The traffic was all there in the Western Union offices. Although it was encrypted and used a one-time pad system, which the Soviets considered to be invulnerable. So the Venona operation began in 1943 and wasn't closed down until 1979. Really? During that period, uh, the, the British and the National Security Agency and its predecessor, the Armed Forces Security Agency, tried to break uh, this traffic and nearly 3,000 telegrams ultimately proved to be useful. And you're right, they revealed that uh, the Rosenbergs uh, were both Soviet spies. It revealed the existence of a spy right at the top of OSS, General Donovan's assistant, Duncan Lee, was a Soviet spy. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It, re okay. it revealed uh, a spy in the White House, President Roosevelt's uh, economic advisor, Lachlan Curry, was a long-term Soviet mole. The deputy head of the uh, Treasury, Harry Dexter White, was a Soviet spy. So dozens and dozens of these long-term ideologically committed Soviet agents were revealed in the Venona traffic. Now, the Venona operation was betrayed to the Soviets in 1949, so they changed their, their cipher systems in 1949, but they had to live with the knowledge that Pandora was out of the box between the period of 19, really about 1940 to 1949, and those nine years were studied right up until uh, 1979, and of course remained very secret until 1996, when ultimately the traffic was declassified. When when Joe McCarthy made those wild allegations, and obviously he's been discredited in American history, did anyone tell him any information about the phenomena that might have led him to make wild accusations, or, or that, that couldn't be proven but were in fact somewhat true? Well, what's so remarkable looking back at the National Security Agency is that there was a group of analysts and cryptographers who knew the truth about the scale of Soviet penetration of uh, American administrations. And they kept quiet. They didn't make a single whistleblowing telephone call to Richard Nixon or to Joe McCarthy. And ultimately, we can look back and we can see that Joe McCarthy was right, but for completely the wrong reasons. He didn't have a list of 40 moles inside the State Department. There were uh, spies in the U.S. State Department and in the CIA, for that matter, and in the Justice Department, who were spies right across the American administration. And to that extent, Joe McCarthy was correct, but he had no clue about the secret of Venona, and that really wasn't disclosed until, for the first time, probably in about 1982, there were a couple of references in books to the Venona material. Were, were these mostly ideological spies and not spies for money? Well, let's put it this way. The, the Soviet agents during the Second World War largely were based on networks that had been created for industrial purposes before the Second World War. So the, the Soviets engaged in wholesale industrial espionage prior to the Second World War because they weren't prepared to buy patents or uh, take 
pay money for licenses for industrial processes, for chemical compounds. And so they stole a lot of this information in order to industrialize the Soviet Union at low cost. And these industrial espionage networks that existed in the United States uh, who were well paid for their work subsequently carried on during the Second World War. And these were the chemists and the technicians who were in a position to be recruited by the Manhattan Project and then become extremely valuable to the Soviets when they themselves created an operation codenamed Enormous in order to penetrate Los Alamos and to be able to ultimately place about 40 different sources uh, at Berkeley, at the Argonne Laboratories, uh, in Tennessee, uh, in, every, in every part of the Manhattan Project. Was Klaus Fuchs, was, what, he was a British spy for the Soviets. And he, was he one of the main reasons they got the bomb? Or was he just not as important as I think? Yes. Klaus Fuchs was uh, a German scientist who was a naturalized British subject. And he traveled to the United States to participate in the Manhattan Project. And while he was at Santa Fe, he provided very valuable information to the Soviets. So the Soviets began a parallel nuclear weapons program in 1941, based on information that they had received originally in London from a spy called John Cancross, who copied the Frisch Piles Memorandum, which was the formula for miniaturizing atomic weapons. Atomic weapons, there was nothing secret about atomic weapons originally. The trouble is they were just too big to be used. You couldn't, they'd be the size of a ship. And it was Frisch and Piles who created the concept of a miniaturized weapon that could be carried in an aircraft. That information was betrayed to the Soviets by John Cancross. And from that moment, the Soviets used all their intelligence resources to concentrate on creating their own atomic weapon. And that atomic weapon was based on the plutonium weapon that was developed at Los Alamos but they could cut all the corners. They didn't have to do the research because Klaus Fuchs and Alan Nunnay and a dozen others supplied the Soviets with the key information that they needed so they didn't have to do all the legwork that had been undertaken by British and American scientists. Mr. West, how important was um, Kim Philby to the Soviets? Was he uh, one of their most important spies? Kim Philby was recruited by the Soviets in 1934 when he didn't have access to classified information. He himself didn't get access to classified information until 1941. And between 1941 and 1951, he worked in the British Secret Intelligence Service and supplied a wealth of information to the Soviets. But ultimately, although he was very highly regarded both by the British and Americans as a consummate intelligence analyst and by the Soviets as a brilliant mole. I wonder how much long-term damage he did because when you study his war work, which was mainly tracing and interdicting 
German spies in the Iberian Peninsula during the Second World War. He didn't really do a great deal of damage, in my judgment, to British or American interests. It is true that after the war, he betrayed a very large number of covert operations that were conducted against the Soviet Union, and of course, virtually neutralized the British Secret Intelligence Service by betraying the identities of not only senior management, but all the case officers and indeed the identities of their agents where he could get that information. So after the war, he did great damage to SIS. But whether ultimately he had the kind of long-term impact that the Rosenbergs had or Klaus Fuchs had, uh, I'm inclined to doubt. And of course, he lived out his last days in Moscow. It was said that he used to get his suits delivered to him in Moscow from Savile Row. And it reminded me, I think there's one British trader still alive in Moscow who gave the information that they were tapping the communication networks. I think his name is Cohen. He was from Egypt. and No, that's George Blake. George Blake, I'm sorry, Blake. Yes, and he's still but alive. George correct? Blake was a Secret Intelligence Service um, officer who was arrested in 1961. And I met him uh, in Moscow. He's, he's very elderly. Uh, he's virtually blind now. But uh, in... In all other respects, his, his mind is sharp, and he has come to terms with living in Russia and is, is a true believer. I'm pleased to say that Kim Philby drank himself to death <laughs> right. and had a miserable existence in Moscow. Right, right. And uh, When were you in Moscow? When did you discuss, talk to Blake? Oh, in the late 1980s was the last time that I, that I spoke to George Blake. Interesting. Okay. If I could just turn your attention, I remember you talked about this when I heard you lecture about 10 years ago, and obviously James Bond is of interest to a lot of people, including myself, and you were discussing some of the things that Ian Fleming used uh, from his service in the British intelligence to later translate it into James Bond. I think one of the things you discussed was the double O system and how that related to various British um, areas of service um, locations. Before and during the Second World War, the British adopted a code system of five digits in order to identify countries and personnel. And it was really quite a simple system. So if we take, for example, the British Secret Intelligence Service station in New York, the United States was always referred to in telegrams just simply as 1919. And the SIS station commander in New York was referred to as 19100. His deputy was 19200. If his deputy recruited an agent, that agent would be referred to as 192001. And that allowed him up to 99 recruitments. All right. So this, once you're indoctrinated into the system and once you know that 12 stands for Germany, or 23 is Turkey. Once you understand the system, it becomes second nature that you use this system. And so that's pretty good evidence that Ian Fleming, in identifying James Bond as 007, was essentially copying, slightly amending, 
the system that had been used by the British Secret Intelligence Service before and during the Second World War. And it was a very efficient system because it meant you never had to put a name or put a country into any communications. I see. How important was Ian Fleming in his service in World War II? How, how important was he as in the intelligence service? Well, Ian Fleming was of no real significance at all. He, he had a talent for writing short stories. He could encapsulate quite difficult concepts in three paragraphs, and that was his skill. So he was the personal assistant to Admiral John Godfrey, who was the director of naval intelligence. And Fleming went to work for him in 1939, and he was an ideas man. He just came bubbling up with lots of, uh, some of them were half-baked, but a few of his ideas were very effective. For example, he proposed and uh, ultimately saw through the creation of an elite small unit called 30 Assault Group, which was a, a bunch of commandos who would be deployed just ahead of the front line in order to be able to seize particularly cryptographic uh, material and uh, ciphers and code books and so on, that kind of information uh, before it could be destroyed by the enemy. So that was quite an ingenious uh, idea which he followed through. He had plenty of other ideas which were not so good, which didn't survive. But it's pretty obvious that he relied, when he came to write his James Bond novels in the 1950s, that he came to rely on some of his wartime experiences that he then turned into plots for his novels. So, Mr. West, if I could then just turn your attention. I, we had, as I said to you on the phone, we were lucky enough to have Viktor Ostrovsky on the phone. And obviously, his service in the Mossad was years ago. But it's it just sort of part of the question I wanted to ask you is, what would you say is the most effective intelligence service in the world today? Do you think it's the Mossad or would it be the CIA? Or what's your opinion? Well, it, it's a fascinating subject, and you've got to set out the criteria by which you're going to judge uh, an intelligence agency. Is it their performance? Uh, is it their ability to run good agents? Is it their ability to collect first-rate intelligence? Is it their uh, avoidance of penetration? And the reality is that if you use those criteria to judge a performance, probably the best intelligence agency in the world is the one that has been in existence longest. It's been in continuous existence from 1883. Let me give you some more clues to its existence. It had British officers until 1947. Uh, that's, that's a significant clue and has never been penetrated. And of course, I'm talking about the Delhi Intelligence Bureau. This is the principal Indian intelligence agency and it was just a group of 300 British intelligence officers who effectively ran the whole of the Indian subcontinent up until 1947. And during that period, they had agents and representatives in every police station in India and were able to penetrate every mutiny, every demonstration, uh, every uh, event in the bazaar the DIB were there. They had never been penetrated, and the DIB 
really was the training ground for MI5 and the British Secret Intelligence Service. So the, the second Director General of MI5 was Sir David Petrie. His background, the Delhi Intelligence Bureau. All the senior staff of the Secret Intelligence Service, including the Deputy Chief, all had their background in the Delhi Intelligence Bureau. So this was uh, a magnificent nursery in which to learn the skills of penetration, the management of agents, double agents, and the ability to be able to, for example, penetrate and control the Communist Party of India. So over a long period, I would say without question, the DIB really is probably the most successful intelligence agency in the world. That's a fascinating, and it, it still exists in its current form as a successor to what the British had right now. But the DIB continues uh, in direct line from the British officers in 1947. Uh, upon partition, uh, one of the chiefs of the DIB, the, sorry, the head of military intelligence, subsequently went to run the Pakistani equivalent of the DIB. But the interesting thing about the DIB is that it has never been penetrated. It doesn't employ Muslims, and its principal operations are conducted in Canada, uh, mainly against uh, the Sikh separatists, uh, against the um, Maldive Islands in the uh, Indian Ocean, uh, which of course are uh, Muslim, and uh, Pakistan. So there are a limited number of targets, but they are very effective, very operational in the United Kingdom, where there's a large Sikh uh, active community engaging in terrorism against India, and the same in Canada. That's, that's very interesting, Mr. West. Thank you for sharing that. If I could just ask you about the Russian intelligence service, which obviously morphed from the KGB to what, to what it is now under Putin— would you say that um, in a way, in, in some in sort of an odd way, they might be more aggressive now than they were under Soviet times? Because people like Andropov, as I understood it, were fairly careful, and they didn't want to, and obviously they killed uh, that guy Markov, um, a dissident. But in general, they didn't do a lot of assassinations versus what it's been accused of doing now and killing this person, well, Nemstov, and near the Kremlin, and assassinations that they've carried out in London, as you know, when they, the, the guy with the plutonium. Would you say in some ways that the Russian intelligence service is more dangerous today than it was under Soviet times? I don't think that you can make that judgment because it's not clear the extent to which some of the murders that have taken place, that they've actually been state-sponsored. It is clear that uh, some assassinations, uh, in particular uh, in London, Sasha Litvinenko, for example, uh, that clearly was state-sponsored. But th these are limited operations, and I think that the, the Russians would claim that they were legal in the sense that they have passed a law that uh, authorizes these kinds of actions overseas. And we've seen them taking action against uh, various uh, radical Muslims, for example, in the Middle East. And they have been ruthlessly effective. But whether you could say that they are more dangerous now or pose a greater threat than during Soviet times, uh, I, I very much doubt. Uh, frankly, if you travel more than 100 kilometers out of 
Moscow or 100 kilometers out of St. Petersburg, it's very thirdy worldy. Uh, nothing works. Xerox machines don't work. Telephones don't work. The system is corrupt. Uh, I personally take the view that the Russians pose a greater threat to themselves than really to anybody else. What do you see, Mr. West, as the greatest threat to the West? Is it, is it nuclear proliferation? Is it someone getting a dirty bomb into London or New York? Is that the biggest threat we face? I think there's no question that Islamic terrorism is going to be with us for a very long time, and all that we can seek to do is to contain it. We've always experienced terrorism of one kind or another, and... The issue is not to play the terrorist game and to overreact, but to contain them as far as it is possible to do so. I think ultimately when you look at uh, threats to Western stability and Western trade, you have to look at the Chinese. The Chinese conduct their intelligence operations in a very different way to conventional Western agencies and they are very much more commercially orientated and they are a difficult organization to penetrate but the sheer scale of the ministry of state security in the people's republic is hard to exaggerate uh, nor can you exaggerate the extent to which the ministry of state security recruits on a sort of blunderbuss scale rather than individually seeking uh, particular volunteers. They'll just approach dozens and dozens of people. And you have to assume that a large proportion of Chinese students and businessmen traveling overseas uh, have in some way some kind of a relationship with the Ministry of State Security. And let me remind you that the longest and one of the most dangerous and deepest penetrations of the CIA was not 